G'day everyone. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host Tiffany Cook and today I am bringing you an episode that I recorded recently for my show which is Roll With The Punches podcast and it occurred to me upon editing it that Brandon Griffith was a perfect conversation to be bringing to the Code 9 Foundation listeners as well. So here he is. He is a law enforcement officer as well. And in this episode, we talk a lot about the work that he is doing with understanding and better equipping law enforcement officers to deal with high stress critical incidences. He's doing some great stuff. He's got a really great story to tell and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Did you know that sudden cardiac arrest is not a heart attack? It's actually an electrical malfunction of the heart and it can happen to anyone in any moment, even if you're young, fit and healthy. In fact, over 30,000 people die every year in Australia from sudden cardiac arrest. And that's one death every 16 minutes. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well with me. Quick treatment is key, but ambulance response times can't always hit the mark. So getting our hands on a defibrillator within minutes is our very best bet. Tiff, what's a defibrillator? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. You might know the device as a defib or an AED. And they are the only way to quickly reset a heart's rhythm. If we use these within minutes, the chance of survival raises to a promising 90%. But without a defib, it drops to 5%. And I know they sound pretty high-tech and scary, right? But actually, defibs are designed so even a child could use one. All it takes is the press of a button and the device literally tells you how to apply the pads and it functions automatically. It even reads the patient's heart rhythm and only delivers a shock if and when necessary. So there you go. Being a hero cannot get any simpler than that. You can't harm yourself, you can't harm the patient, and you can't be held liable. Wouldn't you want to save a life? I would. Go and get in touch with my friends at AED Authority because they make owning a defib easy. Hit them up at www.aedauthority.com.au. Brandon Griffith. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on again. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. You're still alive, so that's a bonus. There we go. Still, still hard, still ticking. <laughs> good work. It's been nearly a year since we last spoke. Um, how have you been? Good. Things are going in the right direction, and the nonprofit is keeping us busy. We are training law enforcement all over now, so going in the right direction. All right, let's have a little rehash on on your backstory and who you are. We talked in depth last episode. If anyone wants to listen, it was episode 410. But for those who haven't heard and just want to listen now, give us an overview. Absolutely. So I'm a sheriff deputy. I work for Pinal County Sheriff's Office. I am the founder and CEO of Grip of Blue Heart Nonprofit, where we prepare, train, and equip law enforcement for time-sensitive medical emergencies, your cardiac arrest, your bleeding control, your drug overdoses, excited delirium, all the stuff our cops are responding to. At 26, uh, I suffered a cardiac arrest. I dropped dead off duty. My wife and a fellow officer did CPR on me. I was dead for 16 and a half minutes before they were able to get a pulse back. So this is something that's very near and dear to my heart and something that I'm very passionate about doing is bringing a higher level uh, training and getting access to medical equipment for our first responders who are on scene first 90% of the time. What's it like to, um, like, how long ago was that cardiac arrest? We're looking at close to 10 years now. It was nine and a half years. How long, like, how does it feel 
knowing that happened? How, like, when mortality <laughs> hits you in the face like that? It's something that, uh, I don't know, for me, I, I, I faced my mortality many times. And on the streets, I've been shot at. I've been in knife fights. I got trapped under a vehicle in a water rescue. I've been inside burning buildings. You know, I've buried several friends in the line of duty. Mortality is nothing new to me, you know what I mean, even before the cardiac arrest. But the fact that I kept coming back, I think I've used all my my nine cat lives, whatever you want to call it. So, I mean, uh, it's it's very different when you actually die and come back because before it was just close calls or, you know, bullet whizzes by or something like that. But when you actually die and come back and you know that it could happen again, they put this defibrillator in your chest and it's like it, you might die, it might save you, it might not. Like, it definitely gives you a reality check of like, I'm a ticking time bomb at any moment. It's like, how do you truly prepare for that? If I, How do you tell a rape victim, by the way, you know, you're probably going to get raped again in the next five years. So mentally prepare for that. It's you can't, it's, it's something that either happens or it does. So you can either dwell on it or you can move on. So for me, it was a very, uh, it's a very different case because I was already used to facing my, mort- my mortality, but when it actually happened, my mental health roller coaster hit very differently because I was outcasted from my profession. It was, he's damaged goods. He can't go back to work. I don't know if he can do this. I was, I was, facing forced medical retirement. So I was battling that more than my mortality, but it really, really hit me after I had kids. I delivered both of my children and afterwards, that's when I was like, oh crap, we have no idea what caused my death. My heart came back perfectly healthy. There was no genetic issues, no mutations, no no diagnosis. Did I unknowingly pass something on to my two kids? Do I have to rely on a complete stranger to save them? Are they going to be alone if they suffer a cardiac arrest like I did? Like, that was when it really hit me. I didn't care about my mortality, but once it affects my two kids, that was a real eye-opener for me. Wow. How long, um, how old are your kids? My son is five. He's about to start kindergarten, and my daughter is about to turn three. Yeah, it's really interesting. Recently, I had a guest on the show, and Rob had a Black Widow heart attack, which is apparently, well, hence its name not a high survival rate. And uh and he remember how long he he died, but he spoke like you did when I asked about, you know, what what was it like those sixteen and a half minutes for you when you weren't in this life. He spoke about it so vividly about what he, you know, felt when he knew he'd passed. And He's had, like yourself, he's had a lot of near-death experiences and a lot of disasters in his life and a lot of grief and a lot of things to go through. And one of the things that he spoke so beautifully about, which was just this idea that he was just no longer scared of death. He's like, I actually, he was like, obviously I don't want to die, but I also look forward to being there and feeling that again. He goes, that's a beautiful place. you talk a little bit about your experience again? Yeah, I know we talked a lot about it last time, but it was it was very amazing, very euphoric. There was no fear. There was no anxiety. There was no stress, no pain. It was the most calm, relaxing, most incredible feeling. I mean, it was a different plane of existence. And I mean, I'm here, I'm communicating not like you and I are vocally. It was more of feelings and intuition. I don't want to call it like ESP or anything, but definitely just a different plane of existence. And it was incredible. I, I definitely took away my fear of anything when it came to death. It was very relaxing. I mean, I, I can actually sit in meditation and feel that, that calm 
darkness lulling me back type thing. And I can feel, and I think my, my, we talked about last time, my personal theory is that the longer you're dead, the more your, your soul or whatever it tunes into the other side. Like I started seeing more shapes and silhouettes off in the distance, just like your night vision. It takes a while for your cone vision to develop for you to see in a dark room about 30 minutes. Mm. The longer I was there, the more shapes and silhouettes and outlines of things I started to see. And when I shot back, it was like someone flipped a light switch. So my personal theory is the longer you're dead, the more you see. And other cardiac arrest survivors and people that I've spoken with around the world that have been dead longer than I was, some reported seeing family members, some you know, reported having other experiences, but they all started in that black, calm, relaxing feeling. And it's weird because usually in the first like seven minutes, you hear all those stories that I floated above the surgical table. Or I was over the scene of the accident. My life flashed before my eyes. But people that were dead past that seven minute marker, those are the ones that started off in that black, calm, dreamlike, relaxing state. And the longer they were there, the more they experienced. So I think it just takes a while for our, our bodies to adjust to the other side. It's take long to process that. Like just thinking about you know, coming back, understanding that happened and processing both, both sides of it, both the, I guess, the kind of the calm and the beauty of it, but also the trauma. How did you juggle that? Talk about that mental health journey across the way. Like just, yeah, take the stage, go, take, take me on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> At first it didn't hit. At first, you know, when I woke up in the hospital, the first five days, my my brain was recovering not only from hypoxia, from the oxygen deprivation, but a concussion too. I definitely put my head through the wall bone as I fell on my hands and my knees. And so I just remember for the first five days are a complete blur, even though I remember my cardiac arrest. I remember death and I remember coming back and the pain and the flash and the, the, bl- the blood on my mouth and the IO drills. And I remember all that stuff, but the next five days were complete blur. I was in and out like 10 second time. I wake up and I'm ta- I'm slow dancing with my wife. I'm passing back out. I wake up and a bunch of the guys from the PD are in the room. I'm back out. I'm, you know, just weird glimpses and phrases. I don't remember why I woke up at one point I was sobbing, what the hell's going on and go back out. So I didn't have time to really process that because it was literally told like, you know, well, we're going to try to find a, a civilian position for you at the department. And it was like, everything was just like, what do, you, what do you mean? I can't be a cop anymore. What do you mean? Like, like, well, you got this new device in your chest. There's never been a cop with an AICD that turned to full active duty. Like, well, we'll see if we can find something for you. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not done. <laughs> so it, it quickly came to self-preservation. How am I going to pay for these hospital bills? How am I going to provide for my family? What am I going to do? Like I had just made my department SWAT team, who was special weapons and tactics team two weeks before I dropped dead. So I was in great shape. Everything was going well. Now I lost my spot on my team. Now I may not have a job. So I now, while you're in this recovery, not only do weird things happen like cardiac depression and you're facing your own little mortality and supporting those around you. Like my wife, she sat there and watched me dead on the floor for 16 and a half minutes. This isn't my story. This is her story. Like she's the one that jumped into action. She's the one that saved me. She's the one that had to suffer the trauma of watching her high school sweetheart dead on the floor. Right. So I, I also was insensitive to, to her needs at that point, what she was going through. Cause at that point it was just, how are we going to pay for this? Am I going to die again? Why did this happen? What tests do we have to go through? Do I really need to get this defibrillator implanted in my chest? Like all these things were, kind of happening at once. I didn't have time to sit there and feel bad for myself. And a really scary thing happens to cardiac arrest survivors afterwards is that you were given no information. I literally got slapped in the back from the hospital. Like, Hey man, you're one of the lucky ones. I can't believe you survived. Now get out there and live your life and yeah. kick you out the door. And it's like, well, is this going to happen again? We don't know. 
Well, what what kind of side effects can I expect from the medication? Ah, you're young, you're fine. And it's like, well, can I go back to work? What are my workers' rights? And you know, if if can I can they force me into medical retirement? What like what do I do? Like, there's no playbook, there's no brochure. Like, hey, you might experience this. You might have this mental health roller coaster. Like, you're literally pushed out the door. And almost every cardiac arrest survivor I talk to says, I wish that I had been given some kind of information, but we were just pushed out the door. So then, like, you're then you're kind of alone in your own head for months. You know, why was I given a second chance? Survivor guilt plays in. Like I said, I buried five friends in the line of duty. Now I was given a second chance. They weren't. And I'm looking at their kids, their spouses, their families and loved ones. I'm going, why was I spared when they weren't? And you you kind of go through these weird cycles, but I was so focused on getting back to work because at the time I was young, I'm 26 years. I was 26 years old at the time. I was immature. Like my identity was too, entwined with what I did and not who I was. I, I saw myself as Brandon Griffith, the cop, not Brandon Griffith who happens to work as a cop. And that was something that I really had to, to reconcile and deal with because you don't prepare for that, especially when you're going into this full line of field, you, you have to kind of think you're invincible. We all prepare to get shot at and maybe we don't make it home, but what happens when you do get shot or you get in a car accident or you have a brain aneurysm and you can't, put that uniform on again. How many guys have truly prepared for that scenario? Do they have the finances set aside for that? Do they have other skill sets? Do they have another job lined up? A lot of guys don't. They bank on their careers and getting their pension and walking out. And that's kind of a real harsh reality check. So that's another element that we had to overcome in that time. So, well, they put this this new defibrillator in my chest and they tell me what it can and can't do. And I'm asking, you know, why would this prohibit me from going to work? Like, well, sometimes, you know, your radio can mess with it. You know, what happens if, if you go through metal detectors at the jail, all this stuff like that. So we had to figure out, could I could I even go back to jail to work with this thing? When I walk into those jails, is this thing going to set off? Am I going to have issues with metal detectors? What happens if I get tased? There was no playbook. And when you started calling the manufacturers, it was like, hey, what happens if I get tased? We don't recommend it. What the hell does that mean? Like, am I going to die? Is this going to go off? Like what, what can I expect? Like, we just, we don't recommend it. And I would, that was one of the answers risk management for my city had at the time was what happens if you get taste? Cause I train brand new officers that come out of the Academy and they're scared bunnies, especially ones that aren't, I mean, you're a boxer to a lot of people want to don't have that confidence level. And so a lot of these kids have never been punched in the face before nowadays. I mean, it's a, it's a different generation coming up. So as soon as shit hits the fan, they go for their bat belts and immediately go for their taser. Like if they miss and tase me, which happens all the time, oh. am I going to live? So I, oh. They wouldn't give me answers. They were playing the liability shit. So I had to tase myself. I literally called my SWAT medic and I'm like, Hey, bring your AD, bring your monitor over. I have an appointment later to get my device interrogated. I had to know for my own well-being, am I going to make it out of this? So I literally took the prong, zapped myself. It sucked for five seconds, but I stood up and I'm like, well, I didn't die. That's a good thing. And obviously my wife was at work at this time. <laughs> but uh, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. So when I've, talked about cardiac arrest before and the stats around defibrillators and the survival rate. So defibrillators increase the survival rate from the vicinity. And I don't know if this is worldwide or just Australia, but I'm sure it's similar. The vicinity of a 10% survival rate. And if you have a defib, the number I've talked about is 72%. You're doing something where there's still a 28% chance that you might not make it through this test of yours. Is that what was happening there? Did you think about the numbers, mate? Because 28% is still a lot. We didn't have the variables. And this time I, I was very, I trust 
this is now this man is now my director of training one of my closest friends in his world he is a phenomenal swap medic a, para, a flight medic the guy jumps out of helicopters and saves lives the guy is an absolute rock star and i knew that he would not let me die if it happened he had the the tools and the equipment to save me if, if this thing did start shorting out i i had full faith in him when this happened so yes there's a chance that it may not work but again i was young and i was determined to get back to work and this was a hurdle i had to get over <laughs> the partner's name's melissa isn't it Yep, Melissa's my wife. Oh, Melissa. Oh, you strong woman. Did she know about this? <laughs> Later on, yeah, I, I, I may have gotten tuned up a little bit for that one, but she uh, she knows me. She knows that I, I don't leave rocks unturned, and then I had, yeah. to know, I had to know for my own self that if there was a chance that I could go back to being a cop and doing what I loved, I was going to take it. If it wasn't, then, you know, if it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't meant to be, and I had to walk away. But at that time, I was I was young and immature and not prepared to – literally walk away from the job. So mm. long story short, like I was able to return back to work. I had to do all these tests and whatnot. I returned to full active duty. I had to get all these clearances and whatnot. I had to bring in experts and say, look, I'm safe with any other cop out there. Like, you look at these guys that are ticking time bombs. Mm. Cops are at a 70 times higher risk for heart disease in the general public. We have mm. a 22 year less life expectancy than the public we serve. And we are 25 times more likely to die from a cardiovascular incident than a violent encounter with a suspect and that was per a 2014 study by harvard school of medicine so th these are these are just the, the facts that are out there so i mean you have other guys that are just ticking time bombs waiting to have widow makers and car heart attacks strokes aneurysms you know all these other things and i'm like look i'm in great shape i'm 26 if i at the time like if i drop this device shocks me instantly before i even lose consciousness that I had it set at the lowest setting possible. Like, and you're telling me I'm not fit to go back to duty when there's no diagnosis, there's nothing wrong with my heart, but these other guys with insulin pumps and that are 50 pounds overweight, 60 pounds overweight, they can go back out to the field and I can't. So I, I was, it, it was, it was a mind trip and I had to, I, I was successful in turning back to duty, but it wasn't until the first time I did CPR back on duty after my cardiac arrest that I really realized how, underutilized law enforcement is in the chain of survival and how unprepared most cops were. Mm. What's really interesting is when you were talking about identity and I'd like to, I'd love an insight as to how you, because you, you would have processed it very differently. So obviously you go into this profession and you, on a level, understand, you understand the dangers, yep, you may not make it home. There's all of that stuff. But after experiencing mort almost mortality, after getting hit in the face with that and actually realizing that, the, oh, this is real, is there a way that you are presented with all of that information and the reality of that that stops it from where it's really not sinking in? Is there something that you think could be done better to better prepare? Because I feel like one one question I used to always ask or or was so interested in was the idea that first responders, through their job, it's kind of necessary to learn how to suppress and manage emotions, how to, how to pop them to the side and do your job. And the danger of that is that becomes an automatic function. Is that what's happening when you're told you could die doing this? It kind of, I mean, law enforcement has changed so much. I started in 2008 and now we've really adopted mental health support and we're really starting to get more things. But when I was going through all this, 
I was terrified to talk to a shrink, to talk to a therapist, talk to an agency, to talk to a doctor, because the time, if you do that, you're labeled damaged goods. He's not mentally fit for duty. And there was a huge stigma around it back then. Now, a lot of those things have been removed, but you know, my identity was not prepared for this. I was not prepared for this. Cause I, I literally thought of myself as that, but there are things that law enforcement is doing a lot better, encouraging us to have other relationships outside of work, you know, maintaining those things, not just hanging out with other cops, not getting salty, not, you know, having other outlets, having other passions, having other, you know, whether it be a church or sports or um, a, a club or whatever it is, whatever it is you do to decompress, having friends outside of law enforcement, having other backup gigs, finding purpose and meaning in other items have been huge to help them when it comes to a lot of the mental health stuff. And those things were not readily available at the time that I was suffering mine. I, I feel like I didn't answer your question appropriately there. <laughs> no, I think so though. I, you know, and that's a really big one, just understanding like, that you're encouraged to have relationships outside of the profession is a huge one because, you know, from the conversations I've had, people get you, like when you work in that profession, you uh, you understand the people that work in that profession. So it's very common to kind of just stay in that ecosystem. Yeah, you, you definitely have to compartmentalize everything. You have to put it aside because uh, you don't get to you don't get to process it. You know, you think about the average person sees three to eight critical stress incidents in their life. According to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, a 20 year cop will see seven to nine hundred critical stress incidents throughout their 20 year career. So you think about how much we have to process. People don't realize that you don't always get to mentally soak in what just happened. You know what I mean? Like I, for instance, I had one incident, one case where I had a four-year-old die in my arms after a car accident. Mm. And the very next call I had to go to this lady berated me for being 45 minutes late to a, a bicycle theft. You know, she's chewing me out and she's like, I pay your taxes and all this crap. My son's been waiting. You could have caught the thief if you would have been here on time. And I can't sit there and say, do you have any idea what I just went through? I can't, I can't cry about it. I can't sit here and say, I just had a four-year-old die in my arms. Do you know what that feels like? I have to say, I'm sorry, ma'am. We had priority calls for service, but I'm here now. How can I help you? And you have to suck that up and you have to go on to the next one. You don't get to process that. They don't, they don't pull you aside and go, Hey man, that was a rough one. Well, why don't you go? Why don't you go sit in your patrol car for about 15, 20 minutes, go call your wife or something and say, hey, there's a stack of calls, get out there. So there's very much a, back then there was very much a suck it up buttercup mentality. Now there's more guys that are trained in crisis intervention. You've got peer support guys that are in the field with you that are like, Hey man, you go take a cup of coffee, take a break. You know, you and I are going to talk after this, go get, go get a workout. I'm going to go take this call for you. But that's what you ask what cops have to go through everyday firefighters too. They'll go on some of the roughest calls of their life. You have no idea what that first responder just went through before they came to your call, whether it be barking dog or civil matter or whatever's going on in your world, they could have just come from the worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. It gives you such perspective. Like there'd be such silver linings in terms of your own perspective in life, but does it, how much of a disconnect does it create for your outside relationships or for like you against the world? There's a lot of, there's a lot of research around this, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Dr. Ron Rufo and Lori Hood and all these pioneers when it comes to mental health and the physiological aspects of combat, they break down a lot of what this is. And so there definitely is that there's times where, once you're done with it, once you get done with your shift, you just want to sit, you don't want to do anything. And it's hard to, 
when your endocrine system is getting all these overdrive, every single call you're going on, you're getting cortisol, you're getting dopamine, mm-hmm. neuroepinephrine, all these things, we have glandular fatigue and we don't get good sleep. There is a sleep epidemic in law enforcement. And we to overcompensate that, we do a lot of caffeine, energy drinks, coffee, all kinds of stuff that's horrible for us anyway. But it it compounds, especially when you're not getting good sleep and you're not processing that. There's times where these guys just start getting primal you know you just you're just angry you're agitated. everyone's an asshole like you know what just leave me the, leave me the hell alone let me just mm. sit here for a while and there's people that if they're not working out at the end of their shifts to work off all those chemicals in a healthy way if they're not getting good sleep if they're not having a good diet they're going to the gas station or they're eating donuts and pizza at the training like all of those things can affect the way your body recovers from these critical stress incidents. And it definitely affects your relationships. When you come home and your wife and kids have been waiting for you and they, they want you to go go see a movie, you want to go do something, you're like, you know what? You guys go without me. I'm going to sit here. You're not there for your family. You're not there. You're disconnected. And you, if you, everyone's got their favorite chair and everyone wants to sit there and just watch the game or watch TV and crack open a cold beer, like you're not having meaningful relationships. You're not supporting your kids you're not playing with them you're not in the moment your mind is elsewhere and that can be detrimental which is why there's such a high rate of divorce you know it's not it's not just it's not the traumatic calls it's not the oh my god i had a kid blow his face off in front of me tonight that yeah those those do affect people but it's the accumulative effect of all of this stuff and just you know what i am b like i had to go to court this morning i had to go to this i had to go do that I am just tired. I don't want to do anything today. You guys go without me. You're just, you're missing out on key moments in your kids. You're missing out on key moments in your relationships with your spouse. And you, even when you're there, you're not there. You're just, you're kind of, mm-hmm, yep, sure. Mm-hmm, yeah, screw that guy. And you, you're just, you're, you can be a jerk. And this is what happens all the time. And that's why there's been such a push for mental health, for other services, taking more time off working out at the end of your shifts, eating better, doing things with your family, having more meaningful relationships. And there's a, there's a lot of people that are doing phenomenal work to address this and change it, but yeah, and absolutely. How does it, how could it not affect you? Mm. I had a, recently had a guest on called Sandy Macquarie and he's a former paramedic who's spent the last six years doing a PhD around the health status of paramedics on the job and the job's effect on the health status of paramedics and he's measuring with these um these full vests that they wear measuring all of the HRV and health markers and how you know just comparing even rural to metro how quickly people's um health markers come back to baseline after incidences and it is it is fascinating for me like I geek out on stuff like that but it's just such an insight to you know both the job on the on your health and your health on the job and how those two things correlate and so much of the you know we can measure those things and you can be in the experience but the thing about stress and especially when you talk about dissociation or or trauma is we are we protect we protect ourselves from it by not being in it by not feeling it when we're in the middle of it i mean even just for the everyday civilian like myself, I don't know I'm stressed until I'm coming out of stress. I'm like, oh, I've been really stressed <laughs> because yeah. you go into a, like you just cope, you just get on. So how, like, what are the tools? How have you gotten better at that? How do you manage it along the way? I'm sure it's not as easy. I mean, I'm certain it's not as easy as just going, oh, this happens, I'll be better at it because you're still susceptible to those responses. There's a lot of things, but just like, uh, 
just like figuring out how to overcome your plateaus and workouts. A lot of guys understand that, you know, how it is when you're just beaten, you're like, damn it. I do not want to work out today. Well, you don't work out when you feel like it, you do it because you're disciplined and you need to do it for your job or for your function or whatnot. It's the same thing when it comes to meaningful relationships. I don't care if you don't feel like it, you need to push yourself past that. You need to prioritize self-care. It's, it's okay to be selfish and take care of yourself once in a while to get good sleep. It's okay to say, you know what? No, I, I need to eat a little bit better. I need to do, I need a little bit of time. Daddy needs 20 minutes before with my cup of coffee before I do anything this morning. I, and it, it's okay to do those things, but you have to find meaning in other stuff. And for me, one of the biggest things that helped pulled me out of that and get me more resilient was helping others. And it wasn't like after my cardiac arrest, I never wanted to start a nonprofit. I wanted to go back and wanted to hit the streets. I never wanted to do any of this stuff. I just wanted to go back to work, go be a good street cop. And it wasn't until I started working with other cardiac arrest survivors speaking. One of the doctors that helped me get my job back said, Hey, I want you to come speak at this conference. I'm like, hell no. I'm not a show pony. I'm not going to go up there and share my story of survival. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do any of this stuff. Like, yeah, I just want to go back to work. I'll probably drop too many F-bombs. Like, you don't want me up there. He's like, just come. If, if you feel like it, speak. If not, don't. But I at least want you there. So I showed up and another cardiac arrest survivor was there and she was speaking about her experiences. And I was like, well, that really resonated with me. I was like, you know what? I can do this. So I got up and I shared the story a little bit and it was like a big weight was lifted off me. But afterwards this young girl came up to me with her parents and she says you know can i talk to you i said absolutely and she tells me she's got this genetic heart defect and insurance isn't going to cover her implanted defibrillator she's essentially waiting for the day she dies and she wanted to know what death was like and she wanted to know what i experienced in my cardiac arrest and man was that a heavy conversation to have with a 16 year old girl and her parents and but i, I share what i experienced and it was like this weight had lifted off of her and we gave her some resources and tried helping her out and putting her connected with doc and some other stuff to get her an AED at home. And it really helped me to help somebody else. And the more I started going in the community and saying, you know what, there's something to this. I should share my story. I should speak to others. I should connect with other survivors. And I was like, Hey, you have any side effects on your medication? Yeah, I haven't been having that. Have you been having this, this mental this fog, you know, your lack of coordination, are you dropping your keys all the time? Are you stubbing your toe? Are you frustrated? Are you having these? Yeah. It's a common thing from oxygen deprivation from after cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest survivors experience so many things. And when you, when you know you're not alone and when you can help somebody else, especially another survivor comes up to you and you can just see it and you can say, Hey man, you've been experiencing this. And they're like, yeah. And that weight is lifted off of them. It's very therapeutic. And like Booker Washington said, if you want to lift yourself up, pick somebody else up first and being able to volunteer and start working. And once you started doing this nonprofit stuff, I started to remember more of my conversation from death on the other side. After my kids were born, after we started implementing life-saving programs, I remember more and more and more, but it it really became my driving factor. Like I talked about earlier, I did. I know I haven't shared the story yet, but after I got back to work, I, here I was, everyone was treating me like this fragile China doll. They were like, you know, can you do this with your heart condition? And there's nothing wrong with my heart. I had to outbench, I had to outfight. I had to, I had to prove myself to my own guys and I wasn't going to keel over. So I took every single incident where I can go hands-on with the subject. I went to every dangerous call. I took calls outside of my beat just to, just to show these guys that I wasn't afraid to do the job anymore and prove to them that I wasn't going to grab my chest and keel over like they see in movies. And I didn't have a heart attack. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't have any genetic issues. But it was really trippy with the, the first officer in training I was assigned to after my cardiac arrest, I'm driving around talking with this kid and I said, you know, what got you into law enforcement? He goes, oh, my brother was killed in the line of duty and I kind of wanted to 
following his footsteps. I'm like, who's your brother? And he tells me Travis Murphy. And like, you know, when things happen for a reason, you get that epiphany. <laughs> Travis Murphy was his stepbrother. And before I was a cop and I was working in the private sector, he used to respond to the hotel property I was working security for. And he was helping me along my way to becoming a police officer because I wasn't old enough yet at the time. So he was coming in, we had dead bodies and, you know, rape victims and all kinds of stuff that happens at hotels that people don't think about. He would respond to our hotel all the time. And he knew I got accepted in the police academy, but before I could graduate, he was killed in the line of duty. He was ambushed. And I went to his funeral. I had no idea he had a stepbrother. And the very first OIT I get assigned is him. And I'm telling him, man, things happen for a reason. And a couple of weeks into his training, we're sitting at the fire station fueling up our patrol vehicle and a call, a call goes out, vehicle, motor vehicle accident flipped over. They said that the driver didn't even try to hit the brakes. He was slumped over the wheel. So automatically I'm thinking, you know, cardiac arrest, brain aneurysm, hypoglycemia, something happened. He didn't even try to break. He just slumped over the wheel. We got to go now. So I'm super pumped. I'm ready to use my AED. I'm ready to earn my second chance to save another life. This is the first time I'll be able to do something. So I'm, I'm like a pit bull frothing at the mouth. I'm ready to go. So he's driving code three. It's his first time driving with lights and sirens with me. And he's going, using his turn signals. I'm like, you don't need to use the turn signals. Go like someone's dying. So get on scene, break the window, cut the seatbelt, pull the guy out. He's got no pulse. He's not breathing. There's people standing around filming us and whatnot. So we cut his shirt off, start working on him. I got the AED in the back. And at first I was switching off with my rookie. You do every two minutes doing CPR. And eventually I was just like, I got to stay off. And I, I can tell you that mentally, I probably wasn't prepared for that. Doing CPR right after my cardiac arrest and six, you know, six months after that, like, there was little tears going down my eyes as I'm doing this. Like it just brought up so many memories. I could feel the compressions like on my chest. Like I could feel that like each one, like I, it, it's so hard to describe, but like I could feel the, the, the darkness, the, the the calmness and the lulling, like everything was like surrounding me. Like I was in my own bubble at that point and I was not going to let this man die. And I'm shocking him and I'm shocking him and fire and EMS are getting on scene. They're, you know, they're dropping in their OPAs and they're doing all their stuff. And we got a pulse back and he would die. We get a pulse back. He would drop again. Eventually we sustained a pulse and got him, got him covered after 18 something minutes in the back of the ambulance. He had a sustained pulse. So we're like, yes, I'm sitting there. I'm like, we, just, we did it. I just, I was able to pay it forward. Right. So I'm high-fiving my rookie and I tell the fire captain, I'm like, Hey man, let me know what goes on with this case. I'm very interested. And he goes, all right, cool. He goes in, we're going back on our shift. We go back in service and he gives me a call and says, Hey man, just want to let you guys know you did a great job, but due to the car accident, the guy has got irreversible brain and spine damage. He's not going to make it. So I'm like, shit. Like I hear a thought, you know, I was ready to go. Like, my, my rookie's like, yeah, I guess we tried. And he's like, but he was bummed about it. I was like, hey, man, things happen for a reason. But I, I inside of my gut, I was like, man, shit. I, I was really, really disappointed. But later on in the shift, the hospital called and mom and the doctor want to talk to us. And I'm like, mm -hmm. the reality hit me. I was like, what did I just do? I'm like, now I put this poor family in this predicament. They have to decide to pull the plug. Did I give them false hope? Like, what the fuck did I just do? And my stomach sunk. Like, I was terrified to walk into the hospital door and see this kid's mom. I was just like, what? <laughs> what am I going to tell her? <laughs> and I walk in the hospital and I'm trying to summon on my courage. And she comes up and she gives me the biggest hug. And I'm like, she tells me, thank you. I'm like, thank you for what? <laughs> like, how do you process this? And she says, you know, I want to thank you. Not only that I get to say goodbye to my son, but he's an organ donor. And because oh. of the quality of CPR you guys did, 
his life is going to go on to save a whole bunch of other people. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I was literally, I'm still tuning up right now talking about it. And I was like, holy shit, 18 other people's lives were saved because of the quality CPR we did that day. And I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I earn my second chance. This is how I give back. I help cops get ADs and we are going to step up the training because we get shit training. We get leftover stuff every one to five years. Some firefighter comes in, gives us a PowerPoint, a couple clicker mannequins. You spend 30 seconds on it and they go, hey, you're certified. Get out there. Or where that mom hands you that blue baby and you got guys that are going, okay, am I doing back slaps? Am I doing this? Like all this stuff. I started seeing that the shortcomings in law enforcement training. I was like, I have to do something. And this is why I, I told my wife, I was like, you know what? I, I, I want to start helping cops get AEDs. I want to start helping them get training. And I started looking at why don't, why don't cops carry it? Why isn't there better systems of care? Why don't we have better policies? Why don't we have, re, why aren't we doing reality-based training? Why aren't we doing the stress inoculation, the force on force style that we're doing for firearms? Last year, 1,176 people were killed by in fatal police shootings, but 697,000 Americans died from heart disease. 60,000 from uncontrolled bleeding, 100,000 from overdoses. What are we more likely to do? Use our skills to take a life or to save a life? We're on scene first 90% of the time. So I had to really look at those and create systems of care. I had to bring in chiefs of police and policy writers and dispatch managers. And we had to create a program that would be sustainable and be applicable to not just local municipal agencies, but county, federal, tribal, military. They all have different things. They all have different they have different communities, they have different needs and they have different drives and it's not a one size fits all. So that's kind of how I got involved in doing the nonprofit side. And it was, that was my, my big Eureka moment. I love that. You know, you raise a really good point that I would not have picked up on had it have not been for a recent episode I recorded, um, which I think drops at the end of this week on my show with John Lowe. And he shared his story about, his wife having a brain aneurysm. And so he lost her quite suddenly and she was an organ donor. So he spreads the message and it's the, I welled up with tears several times. It was the most emotional podcast I've ever recorded. I just sat and listened. And when it came time for me to speak, I was like, John, I just don't feel like I can podcast host right now. Like that was just hit me in the heart, but you know, it just made me realize that, the importance of CPR also isn't just the survival of that person. It's also that, you know, if, if you can't save that life, there is potentially 18 or 20 lives that can be saved by quality CPR. You're so right. It's so important. I'm going to send you the episode when it drops because you will love it. But it's, and it's only through hearing stories like yours and, and John's where you realize the importance of things like this and and the difference that we can make. And I guess also it's things like that that can give us the silver linings that can help us get through the traumatic stuff that we experience and we see. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we try to tell law enforcement guys, especially right now, the last few years, particularly in the U.S., have just been so so hard on cops. There's been very few support, you know, the, the BLM and the, the uh, um, defund the police movements and all the anti-law enforcement stuff we've been seeing over the last decade. 
it's been it's been detrimental to our society, to, to crime, to everything. But it, you start looking at what our first responders and what we have to deal with every day and the impacts you make. Like, you never know how big of an impact you made. I mean, just stopping off at the gas station, getting a cup of coffee and the guys who are about to rob the place were driving by and see you. You just stopped an armed robbery. You didn't even know it. Like you never know the impacts yes. that you make just by simply being out there. And that's something that. That's something that a lot of first responders don't realize until they're out of the job. And that's something like I never thought that I would drop to reserve to run my nonprofit. I never thought in a million years I'd stop doing law enforcement full time. And that was a hard pill to swallow because every single shift, when you come home and you take that ballistic vest off and you're taking your boots off, you know, you did something. You helped that one kid. You helped that one person. You found that missing kid. You made that arrest. You put somebody in a cage that truly deserves it. It is so incredibly fulfilling. And when you walk away from the job or you retire, you don't, it's not necessarily the same in the civilian world. And when I, I mean, I'm still sworn. I still work as a deputy sheriff, but I mean, I only do my 20 hours a month or whatever it is. I'm not a real cop anymore. I'm not hitting the streets 40, 60 hours. I'm in the training division. So I, I look at it and I definitely miss those calls. So it's, it's not as rewarding being in being outside of public service. Right. But you have to look for the silver lines and the impacts you do make. Cause now I've realized that I can make such a larger impact implementing life-saving programs for entire police agencies than I could ever save on my own on the streets. So like, for example, we just got a hundred thousand dollar grant for a Northern Arizona agency. We got them all their AEDs, we trained their entire department. We get them their AEDs in like March and they've already had seven saves. We quadrupled survival on another city. We just got a hundred AEDs for this organization. We just did a stop the bleed class on Saturday. We we're training instructors to go out and train this to their guys and the community members. So we are creating force multipliers. And every single time I get that phone call, Hey, I just saved a kid's life. I just used AED. I just slapped a tourniquet on or Hey, I just got my kid heart screened. It turns out he's got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy after I heard this podcast you were on. Like Mm -hmm. that is so incredibly meaningful and finding purpose outside of the streets and outside of working the job and doing that has been so key and volunteering and helping others and being able to do that has done so much more for me and giving me more peace of mind knowing, okay, I can make a bigger difference here than I can on the streets individually. This is where I need to be. I love that. And when you mentioned before about, you know, you you first sharing your story, I loved it because I know that when I first opened up and shared part of my story publicly, thinking it was nothing, I remember this sense of weightlessness I felt the next day. And then and it, and it shocked me because I went, hang on, I didn't realize there was anything heavy. I didn't feel like I was holding on to stuff. And I feel like you felt the same sense of, I'm not sharing that. And then you felt this weightlessness of, oh, oh, wow, I didn't realize. But also you look at how much you hearing someone else speak unlocked something in you. It gave you permission. It gave you, you resonated. And I just think of the people that listen in to all the stories and conversations that I'm blessed to have and just the little things that people can connect with and go, oh, permission. And then, you know, sometimes have a conversation about it for the first time. And sometimes people reach out and say, wow, that could have been, that, that could have been me. And, and I know that they've, it's not something they share or talk about. So even that moment where they say, oh, I really, that landed with me and that felt familiar. And it really was amazing to hear that. I know that that five minute snippet of a conversation, just acknowledging that between me and them I know that that I know the effect of that. I know how it feels the next day when you go. Wow, I actually said to somebody that you know, and because we hold on to so much shit. 
and this is why I love love podcasts. And I, I mean, that just two people having a conversation can be so raw and get so much information out there in an entertaining way. And I, again, like you said, you're reaching people in ways you're never going to be able to fully measure. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is, it's inspiring. You know, when you, like you said, when you give them that permission and you be able to talk about things that other people haven't, I mean, after I've done podcasts, I've had other survivors reach out to me and say, Hey, I listened to you on this one. And, you know, I, I was at that point where I was wishing that I wasn't saved. I was thinking about hurting myself and I want to talk to you about this. And you talk to other survivors that got a second chance to see it as a, damnification not as a blessing and there's other ones that are really suffering that you know couldn't go back to their way of life that have got permanent neurological issues impotence all you know all kinds of stuff that were damaged from their cardiac arrest and mm-hmm. the other cops would say you know i i had to, i was forced into medical retirement after i had this and i never i never thought about those things until i heard this episode it's like man you're, you really never know how big of an impact you can make just having a conversation, giving them that acknowledgement, giving them other tools. Like, you know, you hear about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talks about all the, the veteran suicides and first responder suicides, talking about not leaving any stone unturned. And, you know, no one takes my life without one hell of a fight, including me. And talking to the guys when they hear about, you know, hyperbaric chamber treatments, when they hear about psychedelics, when they hear about um, cold water immersion, or they hear about EDMR or whatever it is, they're getting new tools and they're getting new options. So, you know what, maybe the traditional path didn't work for me, but I'm going to try this. And they're moving, they're moving on from it. They're, they're trying other things because they heard two people like you sit down and have a conversation and Hey, you know what? I'm feeling that way too. Maybe I can do something about this. Mm, I love that. Give us a bit of a plug for Griffith Blue Heart. Yeah. So Griffith Blue Heart nonprofit. Uh, you can check us out at GriffithBlueHeart.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. We just started an Instagram page and I'm sorry, I, I suck so horribly at social media, but we're learning, trying to get it out there. Uh, we have a ton of events coming up with everything in the community from Carbine Villages fundraisers to cops and coffee meet and greets to, you know, digital fundraisers to webinars. We try to do as much as we can to give back, whether it be a survivor webinar with experts or a panel or doing um, hemorrhage control training or reality-based training. We are teaching in several states. Eventually, we want to be able to go international and teach other places, but we are doing high-performance resuscitation, hemorrhage control. We're doing systems of care. We do consulting. It, it, basically, we are here to help prepare your law enforcement agency for time-sensitive medical emergencies, whether it be policies or dispatch protocols or helping them get money for AEDs or helping them get training. That's what we do. I love it. You're a weapon, Brandon. <laughs> Try to be. <laughs> I said it last time, but uh, I'll say it again. Thanks for staying alive. <laughs> I can't take credit. You know, I just laid there. My wife did everything. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Melissa, for keeping him alive. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure having you on again and chatting, and it's it's just so insightful to have these types of conversations. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me back. I really enjoy our chats, and I enjoy being able to have these kind of conversations. So thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Go check him out. I might put your Insta in the show notes, so can you at least do a couple of posts? (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Cheers, everyone.